Let's, uh, let's spend a little time in the Word of God. Uh, we're going to be looking at Galatians chapter 5. If you would like to turn there, we're going to talk about the fruit of the Spirit this morning. Galatians chapter 5. Father, as we come to your word, we ask that you would bless this time. You've given us your word as the sole content of truth. And by your spirit, that truth is empowered in our lives. And so we ask that your spirit would illuminate your word to us. Help us to understand it. Help us to believe it. Help us to live in submission to what your word says for your glory and for our good. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, in Galatians chapter 5, we, we find this list of things that are called the fruit of the Spirit. Um, the fruit of the Spirit is, in essence, the character of Jesus Christ, character of the, the holy man of God that he is. When Jesus died and was resurrected, his righteousness was imputed to us his, uh, his holiness was imputed to us, to our credit, as though we had actually lived that life. The character of Christ is what's represented in the fruit of the Spirit. And it's the work of the Holy Spirit to manifest that character through us. He does that over a process of time. None of this is instantaneous. None of it is particularly easy. Uh, it, it's all something that is um, often felt very, very deeply, and the lack of it is often felt very, very deeply. At the same time, we have these promises that God is continuing to work within us. And we have the promise of the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22 and 23 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. We need these in our lives. We need them without, without question. Um, there's kind of an advantage to the kind of social disruption that we're experiencing right now. Things like this have a tendency to take our eyes off the world and to refocus our attention on Christ. Nothing is more important than our relationship to Christ. And coronavirus is proving that. Coronavirus and, and, and the other diseases people have, the other conditions and the concerns and the sufferings in our world are just proof that nothing that we have on earth is actually ours. Nothing is actually safe and secure. Not people, not money, not uh, friends, not jobs, not safety. Uh, we often com convince ourselves that we have a pretty good grip on things, but that just isn't true. And in our better times, we know that. So this morning, we, I want to talk about the fruit of the Spirit. These are the things that the Lord does within us uh, as he builds us and as he grows us. Now, I want to give you two reminders about this fruit. Um, the first reminder is that the word fruit here is singular, not plural. Uh, these nine characteristics are inseparable. In, in English, the word fruit can be either plural or singular. We can buy a piece of fruit or we can buy a basket of fruit. But the Greek word here in the text is singular. So the fruit of the Spirit are not, uh, or rather is not, nine distinct traits with some people having these and some people having those. There's just one fruit of the Spirit. And that fruit has nine inseparable characteristics. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. 
you can't separate those characteristics any more than you can separate a diamond's clarity and color. These are inseparable. The second thing I want to point out is that this is the fruit of the Spirit. That is the Holy Spirit. This is not our fruit. These are not the results of what we get when we really try hard or when we have the right plan to produce these traits in our lives. I've seen books on how to develop the fruit of the Spirit. I've heard sermons on how to develop the fruit of the Spirit. I don't have any doubt that those teachers are well-meaning. The problem is that our sinful flesh can't produce anything godly. Now there's a problem with our flesh, isn't there? The problem with our flesh is that it's so strong, not that it's too weak. The Apostle Paul wrote the letter to the Galatian church for one reason. The churches in Galatia had been in, infiltrated by false teachers who were known by Judaizers. They were going around telling Gentile Christians that they weren't really Christians unless they had been circumcised according to the law of Moses. That one little change, as small as it is, just one law, just one statute that you have to obey utterly changes the gospel from the true gospel of grace to a false gospel of works. If you want to read Galatians chapters 1 and 2 uh, after the service today, you'll see just how strongly the scripture presents the curses on those who teach a false gospel. And in Galatians chapter 5, Paul makes it very clear that those who are circumcised are obligated to keep the entire law. If you decide you're going to keep one law, just one, and that you have to keep that one law in order to be right with God, you are going to have to keep every aspect of the law. You can't parcel it out. And people who do that are essentially saying to the Lord, I don't need your righteousness. My own righteousness will be enough for me. And so Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, just how wicked the flesh really is. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, he says, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, you might look at this list and, and think, well, okay, Paul here is talking about the really wicked pagan type of people, those who really have just completely abandoned themselves to their sin. But he's not talking about them. He's talking about the same group he's been talking about the whole time in this letter, the Judaizers, the legalists, the law keepers, the people who insist that they can keep at least part of the law by their own power. Now, the truth is, the harder we try to be good on our own, the worse we get. Why is that? Well, it's simple enough. You can't restrain the works of the flesh by empowering the flesh. Those who commit themselves wholeheartedly to a self-maintained, self-sustaining religious practice will not find that their flesh becomes weaker over time, but stronger. The harder we try through our own efforts to smother our sinful desires, the stronger and more dominant they actually become. And so look at what Paul writes in, in the, the verses that precede this, Galatians 5, 16 through 18. He talks about the battle. 
that's there between the spirit and our flesh. He says, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. So this battle is not between your flesh and your spirit, but between your flesh and the Holy Spirit. If we live according to our own flesh, our own sinful nature, there is no hope for us. We face certain condemnation because we will never ever rightly keep the law. But if we live according to the spirit of God, we will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. In fact, we will be free of any condemnation because the law has no jurisdiction over the work of the Holy Spirit. So Paul says in, in verse 16 that we are to walk by the spirit. He says, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. What does it mean to walk by the spirit? Well, it, it means to live according to the leading and the wisdom and the power of the Holy Spirit as he has given us the scriptures and as he empowers the scriptures within us and illuminates them to us. It means that we live in repentance and submission, recognizing our sin. It means that we live for his glory and not for our own pleasure. It means that we submit ourselves to his direction his constant supervision, his control, and his guidance. We trust in the word that the Holy Spirit has breathed out for us, looking to the Savior that the Spirit has illuminated for us. So how do we know if we're walking by the Spirit or not? Well, we don't have to guess. And I'm really grateful to the Lord we don't have to guess because I'm very bad at it. I'm very bad at evaluating my own life and my own standing. We will know whether we're walking by the Spirit because he will produce his fruit in us. Now, remember the reminders that I gave you before. Fruit is singular. These are inseparable characteristics. And this is the work of the Spirit of God, not the fruit of your life as you try your best. These inseparable characteristics are nothing short than the character, nothing short of the character of the man, Christ Jesus, in all of his holiness and righteousness. It's the Spirit's job to conform us to the image of Christ, to take us from where we are now and, and bring us all the way to full conformity with who Jesus is. And the problem is we, we, we start here and we want to say, okay, now I'm walking in the spirit, which means I'll have the fruit of the spirit and I'll be there. That's not true. It's a process that the spirit of God takes us through. The fruit of the spirit is evidence that that change is taking place. It's the proof that the spirit of God is at work. So what are these nine characteristics? Let me just go through them a little bit briefly. Love is Love is that which is focused on the person or the thing that is loved. It's the love of God for his own son. It's the love of God for those whom he has chosen. And this is to be our love for God. This love for God reveals itself through unquestionable devotion and commitment to Jesus Christ. In our marriage ceremonies, we usually say forsaking all others as long as you both shall live. That is the kind of love we are to have for the Lord Jesus, even though we've never seen him, even though we have to wait to see him. 
There's only one way to love that way. There's only one way to have that, that all-encompassing love that causes us to turn away from other gods. And that is the work of the Holy Spirit within us. It's not a choice that we can make. It's something that is given to us by the Spirit of God. Joy is tremendous gladness, great happiness felt in the depths of the soul. It's expressed outwardly. In the book of Psalms, joy is often connected to singing and shouting. Psalm 511 says, let them ever sing for joy and shout for joy. All you upright in heart, says Psalm 3211. So what is there to rejoice about in this world? You can just kind of look around you and think about uh, your life and think about the things that are around you and try and find a reason to have heavenly, pure, holy, wonderful joy in all of that. Let me, let me save you some time. You're going to fail. You can't have this kind of joy by living in this world and by focusing on the things of this world. What do we have to rejoice about in this world? We have God. We have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We have the Word of God. We have the people of God. We have the salvation that has been brought to us in Jesus Christ and the promise of eternity in his presence. So this isn't casual happiness. This isn't just moments of pleasure. This isn't relief from suffering every once in a while. This is a deep-seated, long-lasting joy in Jesus Christ, regardless of what happens from day to day, regardless of our health or the state of our finances, frankly, regardless of the struggles of our soul. This is uh, joy that is based on the promise of God and the faithfulness of God. There's only one way for a person to have that kind of joy. And you know what it is. It's for the Holy Spirit to produce it, produce it in us as we walk in him. Peace is a state of freedom from worry and anxiety and inner turmoil. To be at peace means to be at complete harmony with God without any concern about that harmony being lost. The Lord says very clearly in Isaiah chapter 48 that there is no peace for the wicked. So there's no hope for those without Christ to have this kind of peace. They can find some kind of temporary earthly peace with drugs or alcohol or some other distraction, but that just mutes the troubles for a brief time. And then those troubles come flooding back stronger than ever. The children of God, Romans 5, 1 says, have peace with God because they have been justified by faith. What does it mean to be justified by faith? It means to have God declare you as righteous as Jesus Christ. And he does that by giving you the credit for Jesus' righteous life. See, peace with God means having a, a harmonious relationship with God where there's no fear of judgment. There's no fear of condemnation. There is only hope. This is real peace. It's permanent. It's unshakable. This real peace is peace with God, peace concerning your relationship with him, peace that is so deep and meaningful that earthly suffering can't take it away. It, it goes beyond anything that we can explain or imagine. And so it's the kind of peace that only comes when the Holy Spirit is at work within us as he conforms us to the image of Christ because we're walking in the, walking in the Spirit. Patience is uh, better understood as forbearance or endurance or long-suffering. It doesn't mean that we uh, wait passively and quietly while we tap our fingers, look at our watches, 
in frustration. It means that we endure what we suffer in contentment when we can't escape it and await the day that the Lord brings us home. Uh, we generally want to run from suffering. I know that I do. But Peter says in 1 Peter 4, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same purpose, with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. If you can escape the trials, escape. If you can get away from that thing that causes you suffering, there's no reason not to. It's not a sin to, to run out of a burning building. It's not a, a sin to seek treatment for a disease or for an illness of, of some kind. It's not a sin to look for a better job if your job just doesn't pay what you need. But if you can't escape, what do you do? You bear the sufferings in patience. You bear it with endurance and with long suffering. You look to the Lord and his promise to rescue from every evil thing in his time and in his way. That kind of patience can only come when the Holy Spirit has done and is doing a miraculous, wonderful work in the heart. Kindness, uh, we all know what kindness is. It's not a complicated word. It means being mild. It means being good to others. Kindness is always important. But how much more it's important during times of suffering and chaos. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is described using prophetic words from Isaiah chapter 42. It says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. What does it mean that a bruised reed he will not break, and a quenched wick he will not or a, a smoldering wick he will not quench? What it means is Jesus doesn't come to you in your suffering, in your pain, in your sorrow, in your guilt, in all of your shame over your sin, and finish the job of destroying you. He doesn't come to add to the burden that you're already that you're already carrying. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, he says, "Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and what I will give you rest." He promises rest for us. This is Jesus who touched the leper who was untouchable. This is Jesus who uh, permitted himself to be touched by the woman with the hemorrhage. This is Jesus who gathered children in his arms and who was filled with compassion for the people of the land because they were like sheep without a, pe without a shepherd. This is kindness in action. Kindness embraces others in their fear and uncertainty, tells them the truth, urges them to trust fully in the Lord Jesus Christ. That kindness when it's exhibited in the worst sort of circumstances, as many people in, in the country and the world are facing right now, is something that can only be the work of the Spirit of God who is making us like the Lord Jesus. Goodness is moral excellence. It is being a person of high integrity, honest in your conduct, wholesome in your thought, concerned with others and with their needs. It's not just a way of living or a way of thinking rather, but a way of living. There's a strong connection actually between goodness and usefulness, being somebody that is beneficial to others, especially to those who are in need. But goodness is not just a question of how you behave. It's not just your actions. Goodness is a matter of who you are. That, that kind of goodness is not just an outward act. It's a, a matter of the heart and the character, something that only the Holy Spirit can produce within us. Faithfulness is 
trustworthiness, dependability, reliability, uh, someone, someone who is constant. At the end of his life, Paul sent out one last letter. In that letter, which was sent, by the way, to Timothy, Paul uh, is in Rome. He's facing execution. He knows that the time of his death is near. And so at the end of the letter, he explains his circumstances to Timothy. He had arrived in Rome with several companions, but most of them didn't stick around. Uh, he writes that Demas and Crescens and Titus and Tychicus are all gone, and they all had various reasons, some good, some bad. Luke alone had stayed with Paul, good for Dr. Luke. And then Paul says to Timothy, when you come, bring my cloak and the books and especially the parchments. It's those words, when you come, not if you come, when you come. Why did Paul know that Timothy would come? Why did Paul know that Timothy would respond to his letter and gather up those cloaks and books and parchments as quickly as he could and make his way to Rome as quickly as he could? Because Timothy was faithful. Timothy was faithful even at the risk of his own life. Well, that kind of faithfulness is not a human trait. It's a work of the Spirit of God that he does in us when we walk in him. Gentleness speaks of being mild, being meek, being humble, being honoring toward others. Gentleness is willing to yield. Here it means being willing, to, willing and happy to yield to God. Uh, it speaks of tenderness towards others as well as patience toward them for the sake of God's will. Uh, you remember the story of Joseph in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis. Joseph's brothers hated him so much that they sold him as a slave. Years later, when he had complete power over them, they were utterly terrified. But Joseph said to them, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept, kept alive. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. That's, that's gentleness. That's gentleness in action. We see it as well in many of the martyrs of the church. Many of the martyrs of the church died being executed while they were preaching the gospel. They weren't, they weren't shot in their pulpits. They weren't dragged out during a church service and hung from a tree. They'd been imprisoned and they preached to their captors the whole time. And there were many of them who, as the sword was being raised, as the flames were being lit, preached the gospel to their executioners. That, that is gentleness. That is the kind of meek humility that makes us useful in the kingdom of God. But it's not a human trait. It's not something that we can stir up within ourselves. It's the work of the Spirit of God as he conforms us to the image of Jesus Christ. And then finally, we have self-control. Now, self-control is, is exactly what it sounds like. It is mastery over your desires and your passions and your appetites. It's the desire and ability to willingly, happily subject yourself to God. 1 Corinthians 9 uses this word to describe athletes. They have to exercise self-control in order to compete if they think that they want to win. Here's the thing, though, about self-control here. The word doesn't mean that we grow as, as Christians until we don't need the Holy Spirit anymore. That we, we grow to such an extent of spiritual maturity that we are able to perfectly govern our own lives for the glory of God and the glory of Christ. 
really what it means is as we grow in Christ, we more and more freely give up our right to self-control and surrender ourselves to God. It takes more self-control to give up control of your life than it does to exercise control of your life. That's what Jesus did. Jesus came and said, I'm not here to serve myself. I'm here to serve the Father. I'm here to die as a ransom for many. The Son of Man, he says, did not come to be served, but to, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom to many. Jesus yielded up control to the Father, and he lived for the glory of the Father. The Spirit does this work within us when we walk in him. It's not something that's part of us. It's something that is granted to us uh, by the Spirit of God. Well, let's bring this home. All the emphasis that I've made on the fruit being the Spirit's work and not ours doesn't mean that we sit back and passively wait. Our task is well-defined and it's clear. We are to live according to the Word of God that the Spirit has given us which he is constantly teaching us, constantly bringing to mind. Neither does walking in the Spirit mean that we will always meet our own standards. We are very much a work in process. Being concerned about that work, longing to be completed in Christ, are also signs of the Spirit's work in our lives. It means that we're recognizing where the fruit of the Spirit is not as complete as we would like it to be, and not as complete as it one day will be, not because of our efforts, not because of our strength, but because of the work of the Spirit of God as he conforms us to the image of Christ. So we confess our sin. We repent of our sin. We remind ourselves daily of our need for the truth of the word and the power of the Spirit to live out that word. Uh, we, we have to be willing to examine our lives to see how the fruit of the Spirit is being manifested. But the danger is in looking at your life and saying, well, wow, I really need peace. I'm going to really focus on getting more peace. That's exactly the wrong thing to do. That's exactly the wrong thing to do. That's putting your flesh back in charge. We've seen what happens when your flesh is in charge. What, you, what we need to say is, wow, I need peace. And then go back to the basics of life in the Spirit of Christ, faith in Jesus, confession of sin, repentance from sin, worship, surrender, being immersed in the word of God. And we leave all of those things in the hands of God in his time as he works it out for our good and for our benefit and for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for breathing out your word and sealing it in writing so that we may always have it. We thank you for the Spirit of God who works within us to bring about incredible change. We understand that we are not nearly done being transformed into the image of Christ. And we understand that it's going to take the rest of our earthly lifetimes. But we have your promise that when you bring us home, we will be perfect and complete. We will be exactly like our Lord Jesus, inside and out. And so we ask for your wisdom and your guidance and protection this week for your eternal glory. We ask that you would bless those who are not able to join us this morning and those who are uh, separated from us and isolated from us by, the, uh, by the, the rules that are in place right now. Make us people of the gospel. Fill our hearts with the gospel because we need the gospel ourselves. Fill our mouths with the gospel because the world is dying for it. We thank you for that in Jesus' holy name. Amen.